Welcome to Tax Break, a podcast by the Federation of Tax Administrators where we delve into current subjects and their relevance to the realm of tax administration. Each episode of our podcast features conversations with esteemed professionals from government, academia, and the private sector, and our guests generously share their wealth of knowledge and unique perspectives and provide us insights and expertise as we have our have our conversations. Uh, I'm Ryan Minnick, FTA's Chief Operating Officer, and this week I'm joined by Dr. Ellie Pavlik, the Assistant Professor of Computer Science uh, at Brown University and a member of the Google AI Research Team. So welcome, Dr. Pavlik. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Um, we're excited to, to chat with you. I know this isn't the first time we've talked because you've presented at the FTA annual meeting a few weeks back, and you'll be keynoting day two of our technology conference in Boston. So glad that we had both of those conferences in your backyard so that you could join us and, and share with our groups there. Yeah, my pleasure. It's fun. Well, we've got half an hour ahead of us, and I sent over probably way too many questions to talk about, but this <laughs> is such an interesting topic, I think, for me personally, but I think for also anyone in you know government or impacted industries where you've got a lot of data to work with. And so why don't you take a few minutes first and tell our listeners you know, who you are, how you ended up in this research space, um, and, and kind of what your work is that you do today? Yeah, definitely. So, um, so I'm uh, working in computer science and specifically in natural language processing, which is kind of the part of artificial intelligence that deals with language. Typically, typically we're thinking about text, although there's many people who work on things like speech as well. Um, and... So I've been working on that. I guess I started my PhD in 2012. Um, so I've been working in this area for roughly a decade. Um, and and a lot of the work I've done has been kind of in the kind of linguistics, a lot of more kind of trying to understand various models of language in humans and things like that. Um, but the, the field has changed a ton over that decade, I would say. So now I've, a lot of the work I'm, doing has to do with these large language models that people have probably been hearing about, ChatGPT and all of the similar ones. Um, and we've kind of, like, uh, as the field is changing, the work has changed a lot. So a lot of the work we're doing is still actually quite um, linguistics, cognitive science-y, a, a lot of what my lab does, but trying to understand how these large models work, why they behave the way they do, if there's any similarities um, to what we know about human language processing, those kinds of things. Um, Sure. So how does one get into that? So I know that you're based on your background. You actually have uh, a, also a degree in music. What yeah. about yeah. the translation of yeah. like, language to technology really intrigued you? Yeah. I mean, I think honestly, the career path, like probably most people's career paths is pretty um, oh, sure. uh, opportunistic, right? It mm -hmm. kind of just happens as it happens without like some massive plan. So yeah, my I studied actually economics in undergrad as well as music. I played saxophone. Um, so I did saxophone performance and there was never a plan for marrying those. Like a lot of people yeah. were always like, oh, are you going to go into like, you know, business, music administration or something? And like, not sure. really. It was more like I liked economics and I liked playing saxophone. And that's how you make decisions when you're going into college. Right. Um, so I did both those things and and enjoyed it a lot. And then I got into computer science via econ because I was trying to do some research that required using basic MATLAB to make mm -hmm. some figures. Um, and I didn't know how to do that. And I didn't know how to write code. So I took some intro CS classes um, and coding is fun. So I think I just liked those classes and kind of took more of them 
kind of got into natural language processing because the professor who ended up being my PhD advisor, but there was one of the professors on campus who said he was taking undergraduate research assistants, started working with him. He did natural language processing. It was the kind of stuff I started out working on with him was quite different from, you know, what we're doing now. Again, the, sure. the field was different. The interests were different. So a lot of what he was doing had to do with data and annotation. Um, that's kind of what I started doing during my PhD. Um, and then it's very much just, you know, the the problems, I mean, the problems in the whole idea of like AI and language, they're exciting and deep, right? They're fun things to work on. Even before chat GPT, there's something very just exciting. I think for people, there's like the sci-fi angle of like, what would it mean to have something that's non-human understanding language? So it's like a, it's an intriguing problem. Like I didn't know anything about that when I was starting college, but once you kind of start coming tangential to that, you're like, this is cool. It's kind of philosophical, but it's also quite concrete. Um, So then I just kind of stuck with it. (laughs) Yeah. That's, I think that, you know, we always kind of joke in tax administration that there's very few people you encounter in tax administration who said, I went to school for tax administration, right? There's not a lot of of that. You all come into it from an oblique angle and, you know, that's, yeah, very, very, very similar. It resonates quite well. Um, Right, right, right. It's like something just kind of clicks and you kind of end up there and then you're like, this is a great thing to work on. Yeah. I also like, I'm probably going to have to like clip out that because coding is fun and play that for (laughs) more people because I think too few people have ever played with coding and then, you know, the, the accessibility of like having a problem and then coding something and then solving that yes. problem and that feedback loop is yes. ironically central to reinforcement training and large language models, but I think so important for people to get interest in this field. I think that's a common thread when you talk to people who are in tech and like mm-hmm. that tends to be the common, like why are people in this field? It's like, it was fun. Like the assignments are fun. It's very satisfying. Like I think that that's yeah. the, the common thing that pulls people in is like, working on my computer science assignments was satisfying and enjoyable and fun doing. And I actually, I loved econ, but doing the problem sets didn't like tick this box in the way that working, doing the CS ones, uh, the CS assignments was right. So I think that's where you get the most people who write code admit that it's fun. Well, (laughs) it's important to have fun. That's how they get you. We can kind of put, yeah, exactly, right? Like we can kind of put, you know, maybe we'll put some context in here since we'll have a bunch of folks. A lot of our listeners are people who have like an interest in tax administration. They work for tax agencies. Some of them are technologists uh, like myself. Some of them are, you know, more functional business folks. So mm-hmm. let's just talk kind of big picture about generative AI and how that's different mm-hmm. from literally every other place that we hear AI thrown around. It's, there's, yeah. it's thrown around so much. And I feel like it's important to kind of focus on like what we're going to talk about for the next little bit. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So there's been like a pretty big change, I would say, in the past just couple of years in kind of what the, when people think about AI, what's getting people's attention in AI. And I think for a very long time, and traditionally, and still probably most of AI is predictive. It's for prediction. And there's really, roughly speaking, there's like two categories that people think of as prediction. There's like classification. You're trying to decide like, is this movie review positive or negative or is this person gonna buy a product yes or no or um like you know is this customer going to sign up for our plan or not like if some is somebody could click on an ad right there's like all of these kind of business applications where you're just trying to make a yes or no decision about something and you want a statistical model to do that and then there's like forecasting right like what's the stock price going to do or what's the um what's going to be the effect of this policy on I don't know, GDP or whatever. Um, So those are like 
predictive models they tend to like they're not um they're not easy by any means um but there's something kind of closed and controlled about them you kind of know the space of the outputs right like it's either a yes or a no output um and so the the ai system and the statistical models are all about deciding what are the kind of relevant features that you need to do this prediction and then doing the prediction then evaluating how far off you are um from like the known answer um the generative AI, so the stuff we're seeing right now, the thing that's um, that has really like captured people's imagination is it's models that are doing these open-ended types of tasks, so specifically language and um, and images. And language is the one that's really like um, got people very excited because of um, all of the versatility of it. But that right. it's basically you know you're thinking about just like asking a model a question and it's giving you an answer and you're having a discussion with it right so that's not it's not classifying and it's not predicting i mean it is predicting in some sense but in this case it's like that open-endedness it's generating text and it's generating these kinds of free-flowing kinds of things um that don't kind of fit into that neat style and so i think we haven't really had ai systems that are capable of doing that at at a good level like people have worked on this kind of stuff for decades but they haven't been good. And now that they're finally good, it really opens up a whole new set of types of problems that you can imagine applying AI to, right? Whereas before, when you wanted to apply AI to a problem, it had to be like really one of these types of prediction problems. Well, and, and what, I, what I've noticed is it seems that mm-hmm. we're getting a lot into, because these these kind of what I'll call like mega models, right? The chat GPTs and Google Bard, like things that, that are trained on data sets that are just several orders of magnitudes larger than what mm-hmm. you know, people have used in the past. It seems that like almost one of the opportunities that's come forward is that in the past, if you had, if you wanted to do like economic modeling, you had to gather the economic data, you had to find data scientists, you had to build that statistical model, and then you had to run it. Mm-hmm. Now with these large models that for better or for worse are trained on the output of the internet, mm-hmm. like, a lay person could just ask chat GPT, you know, what, what is the impact of, you know, weather on, you know, sub-Saharan crops and right. some probably not so terribly accurate or some set of data exists within that superset of everything on the internet. And, and those, those questions are now able to maybe not be answered super accurately, but it just seems that right. that's the core of every, interesting AI tool and startup that I've seen recently is like someone without the ability to gather data or the knowledge of data science has been able to ask a question and then extrapolate some sort of action from that. Right. Right. No, you're, you're right. And that kind of example, I feel like both highlights why it's exciting what the potential is and also like the problems that it kind of hides. Right. So that's exactly like this. That's a pretty precise, fairly, um, complex question to say like what is the impact of weather on sub-saharan crops say um and yet the traditional approach you would say you would collect data like you said hire data scientists so you would have like a model you would kind of know when you made the prediction why that's the prediction being made and experts would like really think about they would say these are the factors that go into it or something now what you would be getting like with with these types of models is it's basically a really fancy way of doing search something you would have mm-hmm. typed into google and looked through sure. lots of links right so it's like paraphrasing something that somebody has said somewhere on the internet um or maybe paraphrasing a set of documents that people said and it's really hard to know how good <laughs> like you don't really know yeah. why it's saying that that is the answer um so for some use cases you can imagine a ton of use cases where this kind of gisty 
summarized uh, output, it is exactly what you want. Like if I were searching for something that I'm not an expert in and it's not my career to make that decision, I just want like a a quick answer of like, what's the difference between virgin and extra virgin olive oil? I heard something about this this morning. And so I was like, like that, that a small answer is fine. But if I want like a really detailed thing that's like core to my career or something that probably isn't sufficient right so that so it is this kind of it both feels like a replacement for the old way but it's also like an entirely different beast that doesn't actually replace the need for good models of climate and crops and things like that but it um but yes that that kind of captures what's different i think about what we've traditionally thought of as ai and this new generative ai sure so in kind of some real world examples i know we will we'll talk kind of about government data next, because that's a a whole, you know, very highly complex class of information. But where has your research shown, like somebody who's kind of using this concept, and obviously maybe not at the scale of BARD or or ChatGPT, but it's being used, people probably don't understand it's being used. I I found that a lot of these tools exist kind of one layer deep in the things that we use Mm -hmm. every day, and, and where kind of it's making a big impact already. Yeah, there's a lot of ways that, um, pieces of the technology are, you know, quite familiar. So, I mean, there's the, there's ways that are actually so transparent, which is like the predictive texting or on emails, right? Like this has increasingly become something that people take for granted. So if you start typing email, it's going to try to guess what you're saying next. Or even if you're working in like Google docs or something, you'll see these kinds of predictive things. This has become common. Um, Those are getting better. And that's just like straight up, generative AI often, right? Like it's just trying to generate text and try to guess what you're saying next. Um, So I think a lot of times people are comfortable using these tools in those kinds of settings um, and don't even really think about it. Or sometimes people comment, they'll be like, oh, it's eerie how good it is at knowing what I'm going to say, right? But like, um, but those don't feel transformative, right? There's also, there's certain ways. So like the the underlying models on which this is built Mm -hmm. um, have been around, say, five years um i mean longer but they're they're really in their current form over the past five years kind of came onto the scene i've gotten better and for a while they were being used not for generation in this way so you didn't just ask open-ended questions but um but they would build good representations that then would underlie any other language technology you're using so it's probably been the case for the past five years that when you're using search engines of various kinds or when you're doing um, a, a lot of things, anything that kind of requires text, if you are using any AI models that used text as inputs, so if you're trying to make predictions about ads, for example, or when you're interacting with ads, or when you're, um, or when you're getting recommendations through things like Amazon or something, I would assume um, that the, the system depended on the kinds of models that are underlying the current technology. So they're like, they've kind of been around, but then it's, it's recently that people tweaked a few things and then actually got the generation part to be good enough to have that be the user facing part. Right. So it's like the real meat of the model Mm -hmm. has actually been around, but kind of hidden from users. And I think something that's gotten everyone so excited is really exposing the, like making the interface with users, the actual text generation, which just feels qualitatively very different. Um, But that underlying technology has been quite, quite around. I'm trying to think of ways that the, generation is already in use like i think it is it is quite new Mm -hmm. um so i know that like software engineers are often using it for code 
like basically autocomplete for their code sure, um, as GitHub a way pilot or something good like copilot yeah. is pretty widely used i know students use that sure. all the time um and i think and then a lot of people i personally don't use like chat gpt instead of search like i still like to search with sure. queries just because that's what i'm used to and i'm and i often find that my questions aren't the kind of questions it does well on um, but I know a lot of other people who do actually use this as a replacement for, for search. And so there's, um, so those are places where I think it actually is being used by different people in different ways. Um, some of the things that we're hearing about the potential, like, oh, it can like write the first draft of a report for people in their functions, sure. or it can draft emails, or it can, um, uh, it can help doctors do, like, I don't know personally know of examples of that actually being the case yeah it's more kind of this is something that potentially could be the case um it seems like everybody that's working on these is starting to kind of come up and contemplate ideas of how you can plug in additive data to then do things i mean right Right. like it's there's probably ironically a limitation when you have the the entire internet or some subset of the internet Mm -hmm. up to a certain date there's ironically limitations in that data set size because you're not going to be able to isolate from what you said earlier, like good information from bad information. Totally. And, and it's true that like, right. So like basically the, like people are starting to dream up all these ways that we use we're very early stages and kind of like what you're saying, once people start actually trying to deploy it, that's where you start seeing all these startups popping up. Like there's going to be a lot of new stuff that still needs to be built to really make it work for these for these real use cases but yeah most of the tasks people do in their day-to-day life depend on data that actually isn't on the internet right like a lot of companies and government has private data that's not hooked up to the internet or isn't like in a readily scrapable format right it's in some database somewhere that like when when uh, these models are being trained they're just kind of scraping things that can you can get to by crawling through links and so it's not going to incorporate that data that you're working with and they also only can paraphrase like data that's already been written in text so far, sure. right? So somebody needs to have already said some of the stuff to, for it to be synthesized, whereas a lot of our jobs do require generating new text based on stuff that isn't currently, like we're not always just reading reports and paraphrasing those reports. Sure. Often we're looking at the raw data itself or we're going out and collecting new data and they can't replace that. So there's definitely like these there are certain types of things where people are still working on figuring out either how can they get it access to the stuff that it needs? How can you integrate it? This might require building these small like offshoot models and customized models. And I think there's still, there's a lot of excitement. There's a lot of startups. There's a lot of people trying yeah. to figure out what, um, what that's going to look like and what is, what is missing. Um, so there's like right now a lot of excitement for the potential. And I think not a huge number of cases of like on the ground examples of it working yet. Sure. And I think early in the cycle. Yeah. yeah, And for government, as we, you know, as we have these conversations and of course I'm talking about like, ironically, like a super highly regulated corner of government. Right. So, so tax and defense, and there are certain areas where the data is an order of magnitude more sensitive than, than other data that the government gathers and publishes. And one of the things that has come up in discussions that we've had with technology leaders is that, you know, these models are, likely uh, you know, the technologies and the underlying concepts are going to be deployed at scale by criminals, by people who commit and perpetrate mm-hmm. fraud. And when you have large data sets of stolen identity yes. information, uh, it, yep. it is not infeasible to think that there's probably something yep. out there where you can say, hey, generate a, you know, a 
hundred W-2s based on this compromised data that I have that seem plausible right. for people who are middle income and work in this industry. And, Absolutely. you know, those, those are the things that, you know, we're finding we have to figure out how to detect and, and prevent Absolutely. them from making it, making their way into our systems. So I, 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 get, I hear your point about, it's almost like what, what data are we working with? And so to that end, you know, we look at government data and how government data might interface with some of these tools. And I think, you know, the first question we get in, in tax is, you know, how is that data utilized? You know, what, what's the, what's being done to it? Because if you don't know what's being done to it or, or where it's residing, it becomes very hard to testify to its security. Mm-hmm. And, and then how can you then rely, rely on that output? And so what are some, you know, what are some considerations for that? I mean, that seems like really, really challenging if you want to adopt one of these tools or if you want to try one of them out. Like, you, obviously, we have data sets we can attach to them. But then the question mm-hmm. becomes, like, in what mechanism do you do that? And is it even responsible right. to do it? Right. And there's... Um... Those are really good questions, and I think these are questions that the technology itself is, like, you know, it's um, it's evolving in real time, kind of as people are trying to think about what are the ways people want to use it and what are these t- other kinds of restrictions. So the kind of poster child great examples we have, like ChatGPT, right? Like sure. when you go on and you see these cool things like, look, it's writing a poem. I mean, I'm sure tons of tax administrators sure. really, it's important that they get a poetry format of whatever absolutely, yeah, they're doing. That's, tax I'm poetry sure, is, critical. Yeah, yeah that's absolutely. like exactly right. Like, that's what I imagine most of the human time is spent doing. Um, but yeah, so you see something where it's like, oh, you know, can I have, it, it's honestly a lot of like what you would imagine grade school or like freshman college assignments, sure. right? I need a report on the history of Russia. Um in the 1800s and then i want it in the style of a rap and Mm -hmm. now i want it but every you know the second word of every sentence starts with m right like those are the kinds of things that it just seems so impressive that i could do that and it's able to do that one because it's read a ton of history of russia like specific it's also read a lot of poems and raps and then it's gotten particular examples of doing this kind of task, like flavors of this task, right? Um, And so now you imagine you're like, okay, I want it to now work on, be able to answer questions and do something on like, yeah, W-2s. It probably hasn't trained on many W-2s. Hopefully it has not because I'm sure some people have posted social media or whatever, but for the most part, (laughs) we would hope it's seen very, very few W-2s. So there's like different ways you can imagine incorporating it. The the one where you're probably going to get the splashiest, coolest results is give it all the W-2s and let it train on that. That's um, going to be really hard and expensive to do. Like even if you sure. would have a customized, like the government has this siloed special thing, just because in practice it's going to require putting this information in some kind of place where it's accessible on the internet so that you're going to have some security risks just in sure. how the data is going to be moved in order to train. And then typically for these very large models, it's going to need to like no one's going to have it on their personal computer to use, right? So it's going to have to be hooked up to the internet. So you're already connecting data and model to internet. Um, and and then you expose the risk of leaking the information or getting bad actors. So that's kind of like one way of getting the data into the model is training it on that data. Well, and then and the training process also can be quite manual, more so than people, I think, realize. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> right. Yeah. So that's time consuming. I mean, you, and, and then right. that's also a, a risk because you have to have, you know, I, I don't necessarily know what, what's like, what level of skill you need to, you know, answer yes. and do that reinforcement training, but you know, somebody needs to be yes. hired, background checked right. and, and sat in front of a screen Absolutely. to do that. 
Absolutely. And I think, so the estimates, it's like for these large models to train one of them, right? Like to train one of them once is tens of millions of dollars. Like I think I've recently heard 50 to a hundred million dollars to train Mm -hmm. a single model. And that's like, once you know what to do and you do it the one time and it works. Right. So um, that doesn't include all the development that happened up until that and all the failed attempts. Right. So you're talking many hundreds of millions of dollars to, to get the single model. And that doesn't include the human time, right? Like you need people with particular expertise, um, the data cleaning, and then it doesn't include the annotation, right? So the annotation, um, what you're describing. So having people give it examples of the kinds of things you're working. I mean, I've heard estimates of like 45 minutes per example, right? Like 45 minutes to write one poem about the history of Russia kind of a thing. So it's like, it's a very, very intensive process. So I think realistically, we're going to see almost no cases where people are actually retraining a model on their data, right? Some people are thinking about other ways of trying to incorporate the data, although that retraining on your data is probably the way you get the best, splashiest, coolest performance right now. Sure. So then it's like, there's other ways of trying to kind of incorporate the data in a more lighter weight way. Um, and this could be anything from like, actually the model is just allowed to read it and it can't make any updates. Right. And that's like probably the safest because that could happen kind of locally where it's like, it gets to look at a W2 and read it and answer questions about it or do some parsing of it and enter it into a database or something that could still come with some kinds of risks about getting things like connected to the internet, but it's like, it's not going to be in the model itself. Right. Sure. So that kind of removes. And so I think like, that's like an enhanced or an improved OCR type of thing. I mean, it's yeah, know, someone, kind... someone with terrible handwriting like me, it's going to have a, yeah. a higher likelihood of returning whatever I wrote into the box than right. you know, the, maybe even the average person reading that document. Right. 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 Yeah. Sure. And I think there's, um, and then there's kind of middle grounds where people would say like, Oh, you'll kind of have this, like, you know, like you'll kind of have a clone of the model that's been updated with your data that's maybe shrunk down in some way that and it like lives in this kind of more sandboxed environment. And I think that's what people are still trying to figure out with like, what's the best way to like split off. Like right now we have like a small number of these mega models, right? Sure. And it just seems not likely that every business is going to just funnel all of their super private, super uh, uh, classified secure data into these mega models and just let them have at it. Right. So, and I don't think there's currently like a clear standard of how this is, um, what it's going to look like when it's going to happen. But I think like the data is really where the question is because everyone knows like for it to be useful, it needs your data and exactly how it gets your data is very dependent on what type of data it is, like how much you access you want to give it, where you want that data stored. Um, like how, how deletable you want the data like for like um kind well, of yeah well privacy it reminds reasons. me of yeah. like the early day i mean it's we're and we're still in the early days i think of data privacy right so the, you you have data privacy and now you've exacerbated that by having these like giant models that operate in a cloud environment and right. you know you know no knocks on cloud environments there's some really large impressive ones that have a tremendous amount of security wrapped around them and mm-hmm. it seems that everyone who operates one of those large clouds has said we're going to find a way to offer a version of our mega model in a you know, right. in an industry Sandbox compliant way, safe. Yeah, whatever yeah. that, yeah. whatever that me- methodology mm-hmm. is. So from a regulatory standpoint like that, that still seems like much in the early days of privacy regulation. Like mm-hmm. that still seems like a, we're still taking a lot of people's word for it, right? Like, like we're going to, mm-hmm. we're going to do this and we're going to offer it in a way that's compliant with all of these things. But I think people even right. that wrote the compliance frameworks probably haven't contemplated, 
you know, the use right. of that compliance framework in, in this kind of application. Right. So, I mean, yeah, I, I don't know. Just like that just seems such a, right. a, a big problem to even begin to solve before we even get to the point of like right. putting data in a system. Right. I mean, the very just painful reality, right, is like the way we're going to get this right is getting it wrong first and something is going to get messed up and then people will fix that right like that's how it's this is how like security and passwords have gotten better and better if not a lot more inconvenient right but whatever we've gotten better at um but like through some painful (laughs) hacks and breaches of information so and so i think that's what inevitably needs to happen even with everyone with the best of intentions and being very compliant and stuff like it's new technology and you you can't anticipate everything. Plus you, like you said, you have a lot of bad actors and people who are looking to use it for fraud and for other things. And they're, they're going to be on it quickly. And they have this same technology available to help them be on it quickly. Right. So, so there's just some stuff that's going to be unforeseen. And I think that's where a lot of different businesses have different risk tolerance and government has different risk tolerance for who wants to be in that first wave versus the second wave versus the third wave of adoption, right? Well, and I like Um, your kind of suggestions and the context you put around it. There's so many different kind of places that like small experiments can happen that don't require, you know, big scary data exposure, right? Better, better handwriting recognition, better OCR, better Mm -hmm. like suggestions for, you know, those types of things make a lot of sense. Absolutely. And there's definitely like yeah, so there's definitely like places where you can imagine this already having impact that doesn't require being like here's all the W2s. So like um like we we're talking about kind of like using it in kind of search context, right? So you're like there's a ton of just public, you know, case law and stuff out there that people need to search through and say what's the exception here and how, you know, what are the what are the available I don't know, tax administration like I think my joke, you know, like I it's I basically just go into TurboTax and click through. And every time it says, this is not, it pops up and it says, do you want something? And then parentheses, this is not normal or something to like, let you know, you probably don't want it. And it's just like, good next. Yeah. So, but for those kinds of things, like you can imagine getting Mm -hmm. answers quickly and you can imagine even administrators and people who are working in government who need to sift through large amounts of perfectly safe public information, but just uh, need to get to it quickly. There's a lot of room for that kind of stuff because you don't really care if that data is like how the data is used whether it's trained on like that's actually a really safe place so you can imagine it actually having a lot of benefits making people more efficient making them better at getting uh getting access to stuff and again any kind of reporting types of functions like being able to draft initial versions of things like there's definitely roles for it to do that that doesn't require access to private data and so i would imagine there being like several years of people working with it in that capacity while more risk tolerant businesses where their data is less sensitive, right? They don't have people's social securities and stuff. It's just like, um, you know, there's lots of startups that are going to be using it to like, you know, help people do, I don't know, more fun things and stuff. And they'll kind of, it'll happen in some waves, but I don't think it's like an all or nothing, right? It's not like, well, we can't do our hardest and most core tasks with it. So therefore we can't use it for anything. And I think that's a really good point because I think sometimes people like to turn technology into like a binary thing, right? Are we mm-hmm. using it or are we not using it? And we saw yeah. this a little bit in Europe when ChatGPT first started blowing up. A lot yeah. of European countries kind of pulled back and said, we are not using this entire class of technology. I think that's started to kind of creep backwards a little bit. I think people are realizing that 
like what you're describing, there's different flavors of it. And some of those flavors are much safer than others. Um, but that, I think it's really important to understand there's a spectrum here because I, you know, from a regulatory standpoint and any regulators that are listening, please, please listen, because <laughs> this isn't something that can universally say like generative AI as a whole is dangerous. Um, or generative AI right. requires you to expose taxpayer data. Right. Simply, right. it just seems like there's just more flexibility and more of a gradient there. Absolutely. I think that, that, you know, it's like, you know, human instinct. It's like, oh, something is big and complicated and you kind of want to simplify it. And so having right. this black and white view um, is just like a natural place to go. And then unfortunately, it's that like, pesky nuance, right? That's just so much more complicated and requires navigating. And because you see that among scientists and technologists too, often the uh, the opinions you hear are basically, this is going to solve all the world's problems. It's amazing. And it's superhuman intelligence. Like we've cracked the code, we've created yeah. like sentient human intelligence, or it's all a trick. Everyone, like it's actually not doing anything smart at all. It's super stupid and it's all kind of smoke and mirrors. And that's honestly like 90% of the stuff I hear is like one of those two opinions yeah. when like the reality is obviously somewhere complicated in between. And so I think what we're dealing with is it's like, it's a objectively very exciting advance in technology and it can do a lot of stuff. It also can't do everything and it can't replace every human's job out there. And sure. then, so it's like, this now piecemeal thing of figuring out what it can do and can't do. And then exactly what you're saying, the risk is very much in line with that. Like there are, you know, there's going to be companies who want to use this to like, um, you know, help you, you know, plan a party and like the risk there is minimal. Like it's going to come up with suggestions of like, what are cool yeah. themes for a kid's birthday party and what are good vendors in your area and how might you design decorations and then maybe help you draft custom paper plates or something like that's a cool idea for a startup and that business should be allowed to exist. And there's like minimal risk to sure. people there. And then meanwhile, that's like, maybe we should, you know, outsource the doctor's job to generative AI and just let it make, and like, maybe not. Right. So yeah, maybe, there's like, obviously, a, right. So yeah. there's obviously a spectrum. And the fact that we don't want the latter thing doesn't mean we should prevent all of these new business ideas that are coming up for these lower risk things. So it requires this case by case assessment. And then even within some business sector, like tax or whatever, like exactly what you're saying, like, you don't have to, you don't have to jump straight to let's allow it to like, read everyone's tax information and do all the taxes to acknowledge that there's like useful parts of a task sure. and tax administrator's life that could be automated, that would help speed it up, that would make things more efficient, that would keep, you know, our country on top of things, right? Like, and so I think that's exactly what people are dealing with. It's like, it, it's hard to be in that gray zone because it means everything is complicated and everything doesn't have a clear right or wrong answer. And you have to think through each thing, which is more work, but well, sure. and, the reality. And it's, and that, yeah. yeah, that gray zone can be quite scary, right? Like people, people like to, to be afraid of that gray zone. And I think, you know, you made a, a bunch of really good points that support, you know, this notion that these types of tools are really cool, like first level tools that can help enhance efficiency or can help take repetitive tasks off of someone's plate. You know, it, this, this feels different than other technological resolution revolutions because other technological revolutions have led to like adoption of automation, which then requires less manual work, which then requires less people who specialized in manual work. It feels like now this is almost in reverse. This is like technology being designed for knowledge workers to add capacity to existing knowledge workers, not right. take knowledge work jobs away. 
Right. I don't think, right. you know, we're a long way away from AI being able to problem solve as well as, you know, an auditor solving a right. complex tax situation, right. right? Right. And there are definitely people like I, you know, I hear people who are claiming like, no, we're, we're a year, two years away tops, but I don't think that the empirical data really supports that. I don't think it's really likely that we're going to see. Um, so I think it, exactly what you're saying. I think it's like, we imagine just like these massively augmented, massively more efficient types of jobs because so much of what we all do day to day is repetitive tasks. Like we're not always using our really um, specialized, unique skill sure. of like why we went into the job, right? You're doing a ton of other stuff. And so hopefully we're looking at being able to automate a lot of that other stuff. Yeah. Um, but like I said, I don't even know that we're that like, I mean, we're close, but I, it's not like this year you could go get these models and automate your thing, right? Like I think there's actually yeah. quite a bit of customized technology required for each of those tasks. Um, which is going to require a ton of new knowledge workers, right? So there, there's still a lot yeah. of progress, but we're definitely at the start of it and it's exciting. I think it's also in, um, like this is where kind of this two-way thing, right? Like I think the technology it kind of depends on how people want to use it. And then like some new stuff is going to need to be built in order to make that an actual feasible thing. Sure. Um, so I think that's something that we're seeing right now is like, it's like right now it's been kind of a one way, like the, AI tech world has like put this thing out there like here guys use this it's cool and then people are coming back and like well I want to use it but it can't do this and that or I have these concerns and that concerns and then I think there will be several years of these again more nuanced more gray area of yeah, fracturing that, of different we, types of models yeah. that fit different use cases as we actually get these kind of you know discrete tools that that, that start to make right. up a toolkit that makes sense well I, right. I think you've you know some, like kind of looking back and on part of our conversation here and then I want to talk about a couple things you've got going on you know the you know it's it's approachable so like don't be afraid to like experiment with it a little bit I, you know this is you know and, and of course to all of my government friends listening it doesn't mean like do this outside of your policy right like follow your organization's policy but <laughs> there's opportunities here to kind of leverage the existing public data that exists in some of maybe the big language models or even look at models that would leverage your public data perhaps better than you're leveraging it in a normal search function there's kind of staying tuned to what's happening in the kind of regulatory space with in terms of respect how the data is secured and, and interfaced because it does seem that every major tech company is trying to figure out how to responsibly make those connections and offer up those services so that seems like maybe in a you know a few months to a few years we're going to have opportunities to work with more sensitive information but there just seems to be a, a kind of a deep pool of public information that that we can we can be That's leveraging a good starting point and then it also seems that, you know, let's not look at generative AI as this like scary HAL 9000, you know, thing that's going to take us to the moon and no one's ever going to have to work ever again. Like we're, <laughs> there, there's a gradient here from, you know, planning kid's birthday party all the way up to, you know, at some point maybe being able to do those more advanced generative computational tasks that, mm -hmm. that are highly specialized today. So it's, and it's just, it's, it's a kind of exciting era in technology. I don't know. I, I, I feel like the last one, you know, the last era that felt this big was kind of that inflection point where the internet actually became this useful thing as opposed to a mm -hmm. place everyone could get to. And mm -hmm. it, it started to become more ubiquitous and we started to make arguments for universal access to internet. Right. It, it, these conversations feel a lot like they felt then. Yes. So. Yeah. And I've heard that analogy made a lot and I think it's, it'll be an interesting one to watch, right? Like how sure. much transform and, and how long it takes right um 
to see full effects. Like as I've heard like that kind of analogy and I've also heard the analogy to like robotics and automation, which actually had this kind of like, oh my God, like everything's going to be automated. It's going to Mm -hmm. completely change the way we live. And the truth is it actually has. It's been this gradual thing where a ton of stuff is automated, but it's often like not that noticeable to us. Um, And it's kind of hard to say. And then I've also heard analogies to things like metaverse, which are commonly pointed to as a flop, although maybe it'll still take off who knows um and it's hard to know like which of those things were in like it feels very much like it was we're at the start of something big like the internet and of course as somebody who works in this area i hope that that's the case i hope we're like on the verge of something huge but it could be something that's much more modest like fundamental exciting technological advancement but something that actually most people don't even like people kind of stop thinking about after a little bit and then it's still happening there to your point on automation, I mean, that the scale of economic impact of automation versus something that's more consumer-facing like the internet, there's a big argument for why that makes a lot of sense, right? Because, mm-hmm. you know, we don't understand that, you know, the efficiencies and the production levels of, like, cars went through the roof because we could, mm-hmm. you know, automate bolt placement or whatever that may be. <laughs> right. But, you know, in the future, when we go to a website and ask a question, we may not even understand the multiple generative models below that box right. that's actually doing the work to get us what we need. Right. right? It may just right. be invisible to us ultimately. Right. 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 Absolutely. Or visible in weird ways. I think like everybody that uses an iPhone, right? Anyone, anyone who's ever used an iPhone has used one of like a basic version of one of these models, right? Because you type a word mm-hmm. and then three options pop up for the next word you're going to type, mm-hmm. you know, maybe 80% of the time it's accurate. And then the more you use the phone, mm-hmm. maybe it gets a little bit better. So mm-hmm. there's obviously ways that it, it becomes transparent, but this, right that does feel kind of exciting. So speaking of your research, so what's some stuff that you're, I know you were just a recipient of the, like one of the largest uh, computer science grants ever in the history of Brown. So congratulations. Yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Actually that grant, so is one that just ended. So we had, we were on a large IARPA one that took place over about the past five years. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was a very interesting one to look at um, kind of, you know, it was looking at my own models for retrieval um, like information retrieval and information extraction. So the kinds of things that a lot of, um, you know, people in kind of analytical positions worry about. They're like, I need to write some report. I need to make some recommendation on something. There's a whole ton of information out there. How do I get it? Uh, like, what is the relevant information? What are the specific relevant pieces within each document? Put it all together. Um, and it like really that five years like span to this technology, right? So the kind of stuff we were building in year one was just like so different from the kind of stuff we were building in year five um on this but that so that's one thing we we've been interested in is kind of like working with the models and then trying to apply them to these kinds of tasks um and and in particular how do we like like it's not trivial right so like you have these huge models that we have like kind of like i said the kind of poster child successes but then you have some very specific niche thing that you're trying to do right because like most of our most of us aren't writing five paragraph essays for school assignments anymore, right? Like we have a very particular thing. And so we did a lot of work on trying to get like shoehorn it into these particular tasks and figure out how to do that with the least amount of human effort. Um, and I think we definitely made progress on it and definitely highlighted a lot of the ways that there's um, still a lot of work to do. Um, one of the areas that we've been working on a lot recently that kind of fell out of trying to get the models to work in these more specific cases and just a general interest is actually the like the we've kind of stumbled upon this particular technology over the past five six years um and so it's not the case that we really 
like on a deep level understand how it works, mm -hmm. which is something that people often find surprising. Um, so I kind of like to make the analogy. It's like, you know, typically we think of engineering as something like you're building a rocket ship and there's like this physics and basic theory of, um, you know, all kinds of math and stuff for like each component. And you say, I know how to build this piston here and I know how what shape the nose cone should be and I know all of these things based on all this rich theory and I put it all together and if we fire at this angle at this time of day it should land exactly here and those are like excellent that's just like a huge feat of science and engineering sure. and then we have other things that we found like penicillin which is like oh we found this thing that seems to work or actually a lot of drugs that we use like you know there's like we have these like some kinds of antidepressants that are used for all kinds of different things, right? We don't really know why they work, but we know that they work. It's like, oh, we can use this for pain. We're not quite sure what mechanism it's acting on. We don't know exactly uh, why it has the side effects it has or doesn't have other side effects or something, but like it's in wide use. And the models we're working with right now are much more in that latter category. It's like we kind of found sure. a thing and it works, but we can't talk exactly about why it works, which means that when we're trying to make it do something new, that isn't exactly what we don't know exactly how to do it. It's a lot of guess and check and stuff. So a lot of what we've been trying to work on is figuring out <laughs> how it works, like what actually are yeah. the things, what are the little pieces, are, are there more precise ways that we could say, okay, here are the different components of what's going on so that when you want to make it do some new thing, we know kind of how to go in and fix it in a specific place or change it in a specific place, make it do that kind of thing. Um, and that's kind of some and some other stuff we've been doing on some of these large grants too, which kind of wasn't the initial plan going into it, but ended up being a problem that kind of needed to be solved to do the things that we're trying to do. Sure, these kind of other aspirational goals, like yeah. discovering right. a flying car that only knows how to fly to Paris. Right. And like, what if what if we flew it to Rome? And like, okay, right. well, we, we have to figure out the, the mechanism right. of how it gets in the air, how it gets right. you know across exactly. the ocean. Like, like, like. Is and this... the way we currently do it is like, well, have you tried launching it from Orlando? Have you tried launching it from? Yeah. Maybe the launch location isn't even the problem. Have you tried doing it on a rainy day? Have you tried doing? Have you tried asking nicely? We're just like trying yep. stuff, and then like once it ends up in Rome, and it's like, well, what was the reason? I don't know. It's in Rome now, though. Okay, I guess like you know that's kind of how the science is proceeding, which is deeply unsatisfying it's that's, amazing that, we have this one that's fantastic well i'm glad we have you know, brilliant folks like yourself and your colleagues to like actually work on figuring that out so that you know one day we might be able to you know more compactly create these things and, and deploy them at scale so if i'm Absolutely. listening uh, you know i think you know hopefully folks that are still with us uh and have learned a lot about generative ai and they want to stay up to date on like the latest and greatest in, in, in the development of this world. Like what are some resources you recommend to folks who want to learn more or just want to stay up to date with the news? Yeah. Um, so I would say, I mean, like the a first good place to start is honestly just the news, right? Like there's been mm -hmm. very good coverage right now of um, AI, like sure. much more because it's so like kind of depending on what level of technical depth you want, I think a good starting point is like, good news sources, right? So there's kind of the um, the usual ones and things that have more um, depth of analysis, right? So sure. the Atlantic and Economist and things like that. Um, then if you want more like technical things, I often hear like a lot of um, students and uh, people that like have kind of a background, but they're not like deep into the, like who are kind of like generally educated, but not deep into this. Um, do use podcasts a lot to learn about this so there's i think a lot of kind of 
machine learning ish podcasts that kind of talk at a to a general audience, but about more technical topics. And I think that'll go um, depending on it, like uh, like maybe into more technical details than what you and I talked about now. Um, and I don't know, like if there's like a particular there's a clear inventory of these things, but I think mm-hmm. like um, like like kind of browsing around in the machine learning podcast area, you'll see like a lot of like a lot of them and you can try and find one that's like the right level of depth. But I think the kind of blog and podcast world is often where um, the tech community tries to communicate to the more general public. Right. Absolutely. Um, Which, which is good. It means we pick the right medium for today's conversation because I feel like, yeah, somebody's going to, you know, be looking and thinking out loud, you know, Hey, how does this, what's the implications for tax? I mean, I know we talked about it very lightly maybe, you know, in a, in a year or two, we check in again and see, okay, how are we actually seeing this in use? And, right. you know, it just seems like, you know, the, the world, you know, the, the, right. the world in this particular, you know, aspect is very unknown at this point. So we're right. super excited right. to see kind of what the current developments are. Well, right. we've gone a little bit over. I hope that's okay with everybody who's, who's listening. Hope it was okay. Uh, thanks for chatting. Uh, it was a pleasure to have you. Yeah. So Dr. Ellie Pavlik, Brown University, uh, we'll yeah. see you in a couple days at the technology conference and we'll yeah. talk a little okay. bit more about generative AI and its impacts on, on tax. So thanks. Yeah, looking forward to it. Thanks so much for yeah. having me.